Welcome back from your break. And uh, if you are joining us and you're downstairs, check your children in. Thank you, children's ministry workers, on your way back up. And join us upstairs. Good morning, everyone. My name's Bauer Evans. Most of you know that. And it's my privilege to not only greet you on behalf of the pastoral team. You've already been greeted by two of them, Pastor Dan and Pastor Dave, but to welcome you as well. And if you're a guest, we want to especially not only welcome you, but invite you to our uh, hospitality table at the conclusion of the service, where uh, not only do we have our normal cornucopia of snacks and drinks, but apparently there are some munchkins that are left over uh, from the new members class. So we're glad you're here, and I hope you allow us to refresh you uh, at the end of the service before the Q&A. Uh, begins. We are in a series from Mark's Gospel, so please open in your scriptures to Mark chapter 6. In just a moment, I'm going to begin reading, beginning in verse 7 through verse 30, the first verse of the next section. Uh, you see a heading there. We're going to include verse 30 in our in our passage reading this morning. I do have a cold, and so for those particularly that are streaming, welcome. We're glad you're here. You may be a guest to us. We're honored that you would take time out of your Sunday to join us. My voice will drop out at different times, and you may not be able to hear me. As I'm told, sometimes that happens with the stream. I'll do my best uh, to talk loudly, but that's what's happening. And uh, we'll pray for the audio as we go. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. This is God's word. And Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they, the disciples, went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod, verse 17, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, 
it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him, John, to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him, all they had done and taught. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And by the spirit that you now give to us, we pray first and foremost that your word would be abundantly clear despite the limitations physically and even in my preparation and in my communication that will clearly be on display today. We pray, Spirit of God, that you would do what you have promised to do. And as we heard earlier, you are a God who keeps his word. Make much of Jesus today, for he, he, he is the emphasis and focus of attention in every page of Mark's gospel. For the glory of the Father and the Spirit and the Son, whose name we now pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm not afraid to admit and Linda will confirm this, that when a movie comes out that I am particularly excited about, I nerd out on that movie by watching the trailers before the initial release of that movie again and again and again and again. And so there was one movie this summer that came out that was not Barbie nor was it Oppenheimer, 
but mission impossible that I breathlessly anticipated. And so when I read these words to you, if you are remotely familiar with them, then I suspect you too may be, although closeted, a Mission Impossible nerd too. These are the words of Eugene Kittredge, former IMF director, now CIA director, to Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise, the star of Mission Impossible. This is what he says. Your days of fighting for the so-called greater good are over. This is our chance to control the truth. The concepts of right and wrong for everyone for centuries to come. You're fighting to save an ideal that doesn't exist. Never did. You need to pick a side. Mr. Hunt. Well, he did pick a side. Even though his mission, because he chose to accept it, would be and could be denied if he were caught and killed, and the secretary would disout any knowledge of his actions. There is something about the mission, isn't there? Even for people who don't follow the Mission Impossible franchise, that raises our curiosity. There's something about mission when we give ourselves to something or someone that is greater than ourselves that draws from us not only our allegiance but our willingness to sacrifice for the good of others. This morning in Mark's gospel, we are introduced to the mission. But it's not the mission of Jesus, per se, that's in focus. It's the mission of his disciples. It's the mission of the disciples he called in chapter 3 to be with him. And in chapter 3, he told them at the time of their calling that he would give them authority to preach with authority. And so, I hope your curiosity is raised. What is their mission about? What, if anything, does their mission have to do with us? And does their mission tell us anything that we are called to do? Jesus sends his 12 disciples out on a mission. And their mission is the defining theme of our passage. But did you notice before I begin, Mark did it again. He did it again. Where's my man, Dan Roca? He served up another one of those Markin sandwiches. And lest you bristle at that observation, I would remind you that it's not just the word of God that is inspired. It's the structure of the text that is inspired. It's the devices that are inspired. And when they are intentionally there, it begs the question, 
Why is Mark doing this? The other gospel writers do not combine the execution of John the Baptist with the story of the sending of the 12, but he does. He does. It's his Mark and Sandwich, where the middle of what we read makes sense of the beginning and the end. In other words, the execution of John sheds meaning on the mission of the 12 and their report to Jesus, and to miss that, which we won't, we'll gain some clarity, but to focus there, we discover, ah, this is my point. Jesus' followers participate in the gospel mission because he commands it and promises to be with us in a world opposed to him. Jesus' followers participate in gospel mission because he commands it and he promises to be with us in a world opposed to him. Three themes today, and they really do lay out the structure as well as the, the sandwich, as scholars have called it. Jesus sends out the 12 in verses 7 through 13, the execution and death of John the Baptist in verses 14 to 29, which interrupts, if you will, the story of the 12 on mission, and then the report about their mission, which we read in verse 30. So let's dive in and consider this first theme together, the mission of the disciples, asking ourselves the question, what is their mission about? And what, if anything, does their mission have to do with us this morning? Jesus sends out his 12 disciples, verse 7, two by two. And Mark records that Jesus gives them authority over unclean spirits. That word authority jumped out at me this week because we've seen that word used both in reference to the disciples, but also we've seen that word authority referenced explicitly, but that theme of authority emphasized throughout the first five chapters of John. As I mentioned, when he called the 12, you may remember this, he's on the mountain and he calls these 12 men to himself in chapter three. He calls them verse 14 of chapter three so that they might be with him so that's part of their calling, to be with him and learn from him and, and be graced with a personal relationship with him and, and get to know him up close and he get to know them. But secondly, it says in verse 16, he calls the 12 in order to send them out to preach with, there's the word, authority. Authority. So when we read that verse in chapter 6 that he's sending out the 12 with authority, that's not a, that's not a throwaway line. That's not, a, that's not a random detail. They were sent out to preach with authority. They were sent out to minister to people who are oppressed by unclean spirits with authority and to deliver them in Jesus' name from those unclean spirits. Jesus sent them out and gave them authority. How 
and why did he send them out with authority? Because Jesus' authority has been front and center as the Son of God from the very beginning of Mark's gospel. You remember in chapter 1 on that magnificent day in Galilee when his public ministry began, and the people were all amazed at what he was saying. And what did they say? A new teaching with, say the word with me, authority. There it is, verse 27. When he healed the paralytic. And with the scribes there nipping at him with their venomous glare, questioning in their hearts, why does Jesus speak like that? He says to them and to the paralytic that you may know that the Son of Man has, say it, authority to forgive sins. I say to the paralytic, rise, pick up your mat and walk. We saw his authority in the calming of the storm in chapter 4 over nature itself. We saw his authority over the spiritual realm in chapter 5 when the demoniac from the land of the Gerasenes was delivered in a word from the legion of spirits that held authority over him. Jesus commanded and his authority carries the day. And of course we saw his authority over death itself with the healing of Jairus the start. Make no mistake about it, Mark presents Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God who has and wields authority. The word in the Greek, which I am not very good at pronouncing, I have trouble with English words pronouncing them, is exousian in our passage which refers to a delegated authority Christ gives to his followers, authorizing them to act in accordance with his purposes and plans and to carry out his work as they are guided by faith. So this is their mission. He will provide all that they need. First, it is his authority that they go. It is his mission that they're sent to carry on his work and it is his work that they carry on. Isn't that good news as you pray for East Asia? As we pray for those not called to East Asia, for our co-workers that we'll be with tomorrow. As we pray with our neighbors that we may be with in just a few hours, watching football games or enjoying the Harvest Festival. Isn't it good news that the mission ultimately doesn't depend on us. It's God's mission. And our authority to be fruitful in it is God's authority. And so it really isn't primarily dependent on my cleverness or my persuasiveness or my discernment, although all those can be, I guess, gifts, or, or any other human, this is God's mission that we are 
sent on and therefore our fruitfulness is dependent on his authority, his power, his word. And so, yes, that is why we pray, but that is also why we share and that is why we go because it's his mission. Let's move on then to the unusual, distru- unusual instructions that Jesus gives to those 12 on their mission, knowing that they are sent with his authority. Verses 8 through 11. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff. And he lists several things that he doesn't want them to take to wear sandals, but not put on two tunics. And then he says this, this is curious to me, whenever you enter house, stay there until you depart from there. If any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Um, I consult scholars, because I have a small brain and a limited understanding of this. But scholars seem to be in agreement that these are not permanent instructions when it comes to mission work. They're not permanent. Meaning these instructions are not what we consult before we return. But there's a principle here. And the reason I base that is because you read the Gospels carefully. Luke refers back to this mission in chapter 22 when Jesus changes the instructions for mission in chapter 22 of his Gospel. He refers back to this mission. He says, remember when I sent you out with no money bag, knapsack, and sandals? And you can hear the disciples saying, boy, we sure do. What was that all about? But now, right, this is why we read all of Scripture. Let the one who has a money bag take it this time. Let the one who has a knapsack take it this time. Different circumstances. Different mission. So why these instructions here on their first mission? What is Jesus teaching them here? Well, I, I don't know. Simply this. Focus on me and on all the stuff that you think you need to take on the trip when you go. Have you ever packed for a trip? I'm a terrible packer for a trip. I hate packing for trips. I wait to the last minute to pack for a trip. I often have to call 911 Rescue, also known as Linda Evans, to come in and look at what I'm packing for a trip. I'm serious. I mean, and trips are fun. Packing is painful. Planning for trips are sort of fun, but then actually preparing for the trip by thinking through the details is excruciating to me. On this mission trip, Jesus said, don't plan to take anything. Why? because I'm sending you out on my mission with my authority, focus on me. Be wholeheartedly dependent on me. And I think, like disciples that we are, they're learning how to do that. These are self-dependent, 
self-reliant, get-it-done kind of fisherman type. Love these guys. But depending on God and not themselves and not their provisions and not their planning in order to advance the kingdom of Christ, this is a new lesson in there. So yeah, I think as they were sent out, they were praying like you all pray on Tuesday mornings. Oh Lord, please have mercy on us. We just saw what happened in Nazareth among those who know Jesus. What are they going to say when we go to our village knowing us and we tell them, you're the Messiah, Jesus. Have you heard about his works? Have you heard what he's saying? God has kept his promises. And we have nothing to depend on but the Lord. Wholehearted dependence, focusing on the Lord. I think that's why these instructions are there. And then you have these hospitality instructions in verses 10 and 11. I don't want to get too lost in the weeds here. Like there's some customs and cultural practices here, I'm sure. But it does say that if the village rejects you, shake the dust off their feet. And whether that is an actual prophetic act by these disciples, so I'm not even sure they're clear on who Jesus is yet, but I'm, that's just me. Or it's a symbolic act. This I do know. He's preparing them. When you're faithful to go, you will be rejected by many. That's the simple explanation. And so keep moving, keep going, keep praying. Keep talking. And then we get to the summary of the mission itself, verses 12 through 13. So they went out. They proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons. They anointed with oil many who were sick and healed. Their mission experience confirms what Jesus had told them about being on mission with him. They went preaching. Mm -hmm. They proclaimed, and apparently many believed. Now, this is before the cross, so they're preaching the Messiah, right? They're not preaching all that we sung about, but many believed. They went and proclaimed, and many were healed. They prayed for the sick. They went, they proclaimed, and many were delivered. It was successful because it was his mission. It was propelled by his authority. And so here's the take-home for us as we consider what does this mission have to do with us? The gospel has its own authenticating power to open eyes and melt hard hearts and set prisoners free. This is what Jesus does through the gospel. Amen? It was true for the 12, and yet their mission is not yet fully revealed. And it is true for us on this side of the climactic events of the cross and resurrection. This is part of their training. This is part of their preparation. 
after Jesus' death and resurrection, after Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2, when the full empowerment of the Spirit is given, it will be these who launch the New Testament church into its worldwide mission. Here's my closing thought on this first section. Jesus is telling them mission is a part of who they are as Christians. Right? Whether we're sent to East Asia or we're called to be here. Mission is a part of the identity of this church. Whether we fill every seat or the seats are empty. We don't come to Christ for salvation and tack mission on as an accessory. We come to Christ for salvation. Hallelujah. What a savior we celebrated today through communion. And he says, I send you forth as my witnesses in the authority of my name. Isn't that glorious? When I'm with, I was telling the new members class, what a great new members class we had. And you guys, you guys held up what I said is true. We taught about the gospel, and I said, we try to be gospel-centered in everything we do. And that song set was gospel-centered. That communion was all about Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. And this gospel of Mark tells us that salvation, which is a gift received by faith, it's free, it's free, it's free when we repent and turn to Jesus. It's free, and he forgives us. And we're born anew, and we receive eternal life. But then he says, you now are my witnesses. Amen? So when I'm with my former youth group, who I know aren't watching today, in two weeks, and they asked me, what are you doing, by the way, in Massachusetts? I'm on mission. Jesus called me here. The one we heard about as youth, I believed. And he had me move. And so are you. God's power in our lives compels us into this mission. And God's promises assure us of his presence as we go. And this is part of what it means to be a follower of him, which is good news because when we get to the second theme, the death of John the Baptist, this is a troubling, disturbing, really awful description, which on a Sunday when you come to worship God and be reassured of his love through forgiveness and, and mercy and the righteousness which we see by gift and the empowerment, through, then you read about this scandalous execution motivated by greed and decadence and power and wealth. And I won't belabor the details, except to say this, King Herod, verse 14, heard about your mission. That's what it says. He heard about Jesus. He heard about the mission. He heard about Jesus' name becoming known. 
And although this is sandwiched in between the beginning of the mission and the end of the mission, John is already dead. His first thought, his first thought, which scholars disagree, this is my take, you can, you can come up, but his first thought when he hears about the mission, I think, didn't I kill the message of John the Baptist with his execution? Didn't I end the message of the Baptist with his beheading? He pointed that the Messiah would come. He not only confronted our wickedness, but he pointed me, a king, to the Messiah. Didn't I muffle the message? It's a subtle indicator, I think, that verse of the purpose of the mission. And it points to this reality which gives me and you great hope. A hostile world will never thwart the purposes of God. Amen? A hostile world will never thwart the purposes of God. A wicked world, a debased world, a corrupt world, a decadent world, a greedy world, an immoral world will not thwart the purposes of God because this mission is empowered with the authority of Christ to bring the message of the gospel into their world, into their world. This mission is divinely empowered to rescue and redeem prisoners in their territory. This story shapes these disciples and the message they deliver to a hostile world, for it takes them to places and authorities that oppose it. In other words, does your gospel and does mine challenge the authorities that lay claim to the people we love and pray for, that they rule or ruled by and slavishly devote themselves to. I'm not talking about disobeying governing authorities. I'm talking about when we share the gospel and we're calling them to put their belief in Jesus, we're calling them. If there's someone that's very passionate about their career, or very secure in their financial gain, which they've earned. Or very family-centric. Their family is everything. Or politically driven, all which can be good things. We're calling them to say, there can be no other king but Jesus. And he may still call you and allow you to be fruitful in there, but you must surrender it all to him. We're calling you to repent of having any other king or ruler but him. And in repenting, surrender your life to a gentle, humble, lowly, approachably, holy, gloriously gracious, never-ending in mercy, Savior. And you will be satisfied. Amen? 
we must help them count the cost before they approach the cross. For Jesus will have no other king but him. And the test of that will be if they're following Jesus, we need to tell them, now you're on a mission. I hadn't been a believer two weeks. And the people who disciple me said, I want you to tell all your friends in high school that you're born again. And that was what we said back then. I, it's true. And it's senior year. And senior week, which we used to do senior week around here, senior week was only like two months away. And my senior prom is a month away. I mean, I'm graduating, but I've got some celebrating to do. And I'm now born anew. And I go to someone whose birthday was on Facebook this week, who was one of my friends, and we're still friends. And I told him, I'll change his name, Freddie, you're not going to believe this. I became a Christian Wednesday night. Disinvited from senior week. And the next month was just horrible. They wouldn't sit with me at lunch. They rejected me. And my new friends are all these Christians, but I don't know them. I haven't spent time with them. I don't play soccer. I don't, I'm not in the math club. I'm not any of the... But I was on mission. And they had prepared me as new believers that when you're on mission, you're going to tell people about the mercy God has shown you. And when you tell them in appropriate ways, not in rude ways, in, in, in ways that aren't idiosyncratic, that they, they can't hear the message because you're just so weird in how you tell it to them, but just in appropriate ways as you're testifying to God's mercy in your life, you start to realize we're taking the gospel to hospital territory. We're called on mission to bring the message of God's grace and mercy to a world that is opposed to him. So the main conflict in mission, if I can say this, at least for me, is not those I'm sharing with. It's right here. Because when I open my mouth and when I start the conversation and when I bring it up again and when I share it humbly, they often don't say thank you. That's the best news I've heard today. No, they don't ask for my head on a platter, but they're thinking it. So this is sobering news, isn't it, as I conclude? But it's not bad news. It prepares us for the clash now, a clash of kingdoms. But we are not victims. Christians are not victims in this mission. We are not victims. King Jesus has defeated death. Amen? And we bring the hope of the gospel, a hope unlike any other message that carries with it Christ's own authority. The gospel, Paul said, in itself, in its DNA, is explosive in its power. So we participate in Jesus's gospel mission because he commands it and promises to be with us, even though the world is opposed to us. 
because we have been sent. This mission is not ours, it is his. And so through single-minded focus and dependence on him, with his promise of unequal, unrivaled authority, it is a privilege. It is a privilege to tell another soul he died for us. He died to take your sins. He died to quench God's displeasure. He is not displeased with you anymore when you turn and put your trust in Jesus. He died to restore everything that sin has taken. And he did this for us so that today as we leave, we can say on mission, we are completely forgiven. Yes, we are forever secure. It is finished. We are utterly loved. And we exist to glorify God and care for each other and impact our world for the gospel through the simple message that Jesus gave us to share. Let's pray. Lord, whatever the setbacks we face, and there are often many, and at times painful, whatever the opposition we face, and it can be fierce, whatever the persecution we encounter, and it can even be physical in parts of this world. Lord, as Christians, we thank you that you have promised to be with us to the end of the age. As we heard earlier, God, you are, you are a man of your word. And so we pray, Lord, as we conclude that you would use us, you would send us, you would freshly envision and empower us to go, not in our mission, but to go in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the mission you have given us. And in going, Lord, we pray you would do a deeper work of trust and focus and dependency in us and through us, Lord, haltingly and imperfect as our faithfulness will be, you will save desperate souls through the gospel message we share. We are proof we are proof of the truth that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. Help us now to wield that proof and tell that truth as we go forward in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's stand.